This week, podcaster, TV critic, and fountain of delight Margaret Willison joins me to discuss The Handmaid's Tale, which has been in the public conversation recently for reasons too obvious to mention. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reidstrom. Many of you, I imagine, are watching The Handmaid's Tale TV adaptation on Hulu. I've been watching it and enjoying it a great deal. It's a good adaptation, but my favorite is still John Dryden's audio drama version from 2000. If you haven't had a chance to hear that, pop over in your podcast feeds to Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape, the other show I host for the Wondery Network. It's series number six in that podcast's feed. Now, you don't have to have heard the series to get the gist of my conversation with Margaret, who is a fourth chair guest on the wonderful PCHH, Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR, because we talk about the themes of the story itself, but it is an excellent piece. And if you like what you hear on Radio Drama Revival, you'll love John Dryden's The Handmaid's Tale, starring Marsha Dietlin, Leslie Hendricks, and the late Earl Hindman. I originally interviewed Margaret for Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape, but I got permission to run our full interview here. So, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Margaret, recorded in January of this year. Take it away, past me. Margaret Willison, welcome to Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It is uh, real rainy and gloomy here in Boston today. What's it like in Mountain View, California? Uh, it is also quite, quite gloomy and rainy. But it's not supposed to be like that. Your weather is supposed to be... The ideal version of weather all of the time. We're in the we're in the middle of what's called a pineapple express. Like the movie about pot. Like the movie about pot. <laughs> it's 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 called that because um, it's a wind current that comes directly from uh, the South Pacific, and it just basically dumps all this water onto California. Okay, which I gather is a thing California needs. It is. If you want to take a shower ever, <laughs> right. I guess you need it to rain. So, Margaret, I, I heard you say on an episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour that you, Did you? run the best 24-hour slumber party on Twitter. Uh, and I wanted to ask, are you appropriately hygglish right now? I actually am. I'm wearing um, navy blue polka dot flannel pajamas and a, sl- a pajama cardigan. Nice. Um, that sounds like something I could use. Yeah, it's a special category of cardigan, right? It's one that is uh, slightly too uh, old and shapeless for me to wear out in um, common spaces with other humans. But it's great because it's the only way I could ever have afforded cashmere sleepwear. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I want to apologize right away for the 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 condition of my voice right now i, I <laughs> you regular monster. listeners of secrets crimes and audio tape will, will recognize that this is not how i normally sound and i'm not trying to do a bit i'm just sick <laughs> i cannot believe you are being sick in my presence i know i'm i'm just appalled david i'm appalled just the lack of respect you're showing for me right now is it's shaking me to the very core i'm so sorry dame margaret Are you ready to talk about The Handmaid's Tale? Yes, I am ready. As ready as I'm going to be. Boy, it was not an easy listen. Mm -mm. Fun though, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a remarkable adaptation. It's really, really well done. Um, And uh, they make incredible use of the audio format. Uh, Because one of the most difficult things to do with a dystopian... 
or not even a dystopian, anything that's set in a world other than ours is how do you figure out the world building without making, you know, unbearable exposition dumps. Right. And they do such a fascinating job of uh, weaving in news reports uh, that you can hear sort of in the background of what's going on as other characters are talking that then slowly come into focus. Mm-hmm. And using that to such great effect that it both creates a sense of the space that the characters are interacting in in your mind and it informs you about the world that they inhabit. So yeah, John, John Dryden is very good at doing that, that sort of multi-layered... Um, because it is kind of exposition, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely. Um, but it doesn't feel like a dump, right? Right. It's not the same as um, there's a series of YA dystopian novels that I'm fond of that actually take 19th century novels and recontextualize them to future settings. So they're by Diana Peterfriend, and she does okay. a retelling of Persuasion in space. Whoa! And then a gender-swapped retelling of The Scarlet Pimpernel, also in space. Oh, 10 out of 10 would read. They're so good. Okay. But I'll say this. In the first one, she results, resorts to letters back and forth between two young characters to do all of the world establishing. And it almost kicked me out of the book entirely because it's just these very implausible exposition dumps where two characters who live in the same time are somehow describing the constraints of the society in which they live mm. like they don't know it to one another. And you're sure. like, this isn't how humans talk. If you can identify a single moment or, or a series of moments, I would be curious to know what the spookiest part of this Handmaid's Tale adaptation was for you. The hardest part to listen to is probably the first um, coupling. Oh, the first ceremony? The first ceremony, yeah. that's Oh, so rough. And then, but I mean, the actual eeriest is probably the salvaging. Mm-hmm. Um, they managed to create just like a very engulfing like those are both scenes that it would be hard to watch and it's harder to actually hear right because if you're watching something you can check out and be like oh here I am I'm surrounded by my actual living room I can look at the ceiling if I don't want it but if you're listening to something Mm -hmm. like your body is the movie studio that is creating the thing that is happening. Like, it only works if you're invested in it, right? And it's well made, so you can't not be invested in it, but it makes the entire experience much more engulfing, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So those are both really hard. I mean, but what about you? Was there a particular moment that was eerie for you? I definitely found the first ceremony to be so terrifying. I also found... um, the one of the one of the very first scenes when Offred, before she is called Offred, is being drugged uh, before she ends up in the Rachel yeah. and Leah Center. Uh, yeah. I found that to be really discomforting because it was very easy for me to imagine myself in, like, in Offred's body being sedated yes. in that way. Yeah, same. <laughs> Which is one of the things that makes this a hard listen these days, Mm -hmm. because uh, we're recording this three days before uh, President-elect Trump's inauguration. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. And uh, this just doesn't feel, this should feel much more remote than it does. Yeah. And it doesn't feel remote at all. 
Margaret Atwood has classified The Handmaid's Tale as speculative fiction rather than science fiction. She wrote that the, the difference was that events in speculative fiction could actually happen. Uh, and so with that in mind, like how, how likely do the events of The Handmaid's Tale seem to you? What elements of Gileadan culture are already elements of American culture now? Well, uh, the big one is just the the discomfort that we have with women outside of the roles of um, mother or sex object Mm -hmm. is palpable. Uh, And just the basic sense that it portrays of uh, how heterosexual relationships for women always feel a little bit like you're sleeping with the enemy. You know, in the first portion of the story or in the flashbacks you see, um, when the world is slipping into this full dystopia you have a tension between Alfred prior to her receiving that name and her partner because she really doesn't feel like he sees what's happening to her as serious right and like that is that is the thing that you know women struggle with in terms of misogyny just all of the time is um seeing it and participating in defeating it is definitionally optional for men. You know, it is a thing they have to decide to do, and it is a thing they have to work to focus on and keep visible all of the time. Right. And I mean, I know, because like, I'm a, a very white person <laughs> with really upper middle class signals, mm-hmm. and like, I have to work all of the time to undo how white privilege lets me exist in the world ignorant of massive systems of oppression that really harm friends and people I care about. Um, Not to mention cisgendered. Like, I'm a very, like, very approved feminine presenting woman. Right. And not just, like, approved feminine presenting. Like, I'm, like, the most sanctified category of feminine presenting. I'm just, like, the nice white girl. Like, nobody in Boston ever wants to be mean to me. I look like the sweet girl from their Catholic school they ignored, you know, while, you know, chasing that one girl who'd sleep with people. And they just, they just, they want to give me the moon all the time. If they only knew what a bomb thrower you are. Yeah, secretly. (laughs) I have a very nice face and a very mean brain. When I think about my relationship with misogyny, and this comes up regularly because, you know, I have a, an older brother and I have a mom and my mom and I are both, we're all three of us pretty woke feminists. Mm-hmm. But we replicate habits and um, privilege reactions in a way that we don't have control over. And my mom and I will have heart to hearts about like, are we, you know, aiding and abetting <laughs> like my brother in possessing male privilege? And sometimes we'll determine, yes. And I have to point out to her, it's like, we don't actually get anything from this system. And look at how hard it is for us to put it down. Right? Right. So you got to think, how much harder is it to put down if you are getting something from that system all of the time? (laughs) Right? Yeah. I find the ants and the commander's wives very interesting. um, Yes. as, As like power structures within the Republic of Gilead. Because I, I seem to remember reading that Atwood was trying to get at this idea that a a fascist structure like the Republic of Gilead couldn't exist if there weren't women to collaborate. Like, Serena Joy, the commander's wife, isn't at the top of the heap, but she is very near it. Right. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that kind of 
inside misogyny collaboration, like using well, the power of sexism to reinforce sexism. It's very pertinent right now um, because, again, you know, I was hanging out with uh, one of my mom's like liberal lefty friends and I had to break it to her that like the majority of white women voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, that's impossible. And I'm like, no, that's possible. <laughs> that's that's what happened. You cannot create a fascist system like this, as you point out, without collaborators. Uh, And it's hard. I I mean, I am someone who's very awake to the ways that uh, my gender has limited my life and the way that it shortchanges me in a lot of different environments. And I still can't get away from feeling like uh, a man approving of me is more meaningful or or just more noteworthy mm-hmm. than a woman approving of me. Um, and that's because male attention is the most powerful attention you can get in society currently. Um, if women like you, you can be powerful – but it's only if men like you that you can also be serious. <laughs> so what do you make of these characters that fought for the rights to be taken away? I mean, you see a really interesting thing in Serena Joy where she says that she doesn't feel like she gets the credit that she deserves mm-hmm. uh, for her role in sidelining herself, basically. Uh, and it's fascinating. And you do want to spend time with it. I mean, I think any woman who's ever seen a Phyllis Schlafly, anyone who's witnessed her or thought about her for any extended period of time you can't help but be fascinated because she is this woman who's creating just like a vibrant powerful influential political ambitious career for herself out of saying women shouldn't have access to any of these things I'm making for myself right Right. out of saying and and it just highlights the way that we the way that any oppressed population is coached to fight amongst themselves for alleged scarcity rather than saying, no, we actually have access to everything privileged people have access to. Mm-hmm. We just have to take it. So we, sh- we should jump in real quick and say that Phyllis Schlafly was – uh, an American conservative speaker and writer who spent her entire career fighting the Equal Rights Amendment and was instrumental in preventing its passage in 1973. Very good explanatory comma. I'm impressed, David. Thank you. And it's very much this myth of, uh, like, there can only be one. You know, like, the most you can have on a crack team of heroes is one woman, right? Right. And so then the fight isn't, well, why can't we have it be half women, right? The fight is amongst women over who deserves to be that one. And then the fight is why the one who gets it doesn't really deserve it. Mm -hmm. Because no one woman is ever actually going to be sufficient for representing like an entire diverse group, which is an interesting thing to actually talk about with this book. Because although it's, very embedded in one woman's story and you get hints of it uh, in other female characters, a lot of the driving action is still coming from uh, the choices that men are making around Afred, which Mm -hmm. is inevitable based on how the power structure is depicted. Um, But it's still interesting. I'm 
listening to this, I found myself very eager to see how the TV adaptation that's coming out from Hulu in a couple of months is going to oh, yeah. be handled. I'm very curious because I feel that this piece that we just ran by John Dryden, um, starring Marsha Dietlin, mm-hmm. is probably the most accurate the most accurate adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale that I've ever encountered. Uh, and so I'll be, Have I'll you be, seen the film? I haven't. Uh, I've seen bits of it, and it seems mm-hmm. like a lot of it was changed. Uh, crucially, I'm pretty sure they gave the character a name, like within the text. Huh. They gave Offred a name that was known. And I, I, wa- I actually want to get your thoughts about what it means that we don't know Offred's name in the adaptation. Well, one thing that I think is very interesting is that we still pronounce it Offred, mm-hmm. right? Whereas we could say of Fred. And some of the characters do. Yeah, I mean, you get of Warren, but I think that's mostly because you can't elide of Warren sure. quite as effectively. One of the things that we, you and I talked about before we did this recording is uh, the covert setting of the book. Yes. Being like basically the neighborhood where I live and work. So it's covertly set at Harvard University right. uh, in Cambridge. Um, and if you read the book, and you know the area, there are all kinds of context clues that makes places just immediately recognizable. And it also very much, you know, if you revisit the text, it very much changes your idea of of the place because, you know, we think of places like Harvard and Boston as kind of like bastions of liberal democracy, right? And to see instead the power structures that actually support these places revealed and to see that, like, if we fell into a fascist theocracy, Harvard probably would be just as allied with the powers that be there as they are now. So let's let's go to your friend Rachel Greenhouse's Handmaid's Guide <laughs> to Cambridge. Um, <laughs> can you walk me through some of the most notable locations in The Handmaid's Tale and, and how they map onto actual Cambridge in Boston? The football stadium is a mile away from where I live, and that is noted as being both the place where they hold the men's salvagings and also where they still have football games. Um, But the one that actually hits me the most is uh, the Brattle Theater is a repertory theater that's existed since the mid-50s in Harvard Square, and it in this book is one of the places where uh, the handmaids and wives can go to buy their robes. It's the lilies of the field. There's a beautiful passage, and if you end up including this portion, you can link to Rachel's map, and she does a great thing where she includes passages out of the book Mm -hmm. tied to each location she's identified. And that passage is one of my favorites in the book uh, where it talks about uh, the Humphrey Bogart films that they used to show there with um, Lauren McCall and Katherine Hepburn. And it's women who wore shirts that buttoned and trousers and clothing that suggested all the possibilities of the word undone. Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing, but pretty pretty effectively. I didn't even think about that. Does does Offred's dress not have any any buttons or zips? It doesn't. That's one of the things that they describe. It doesn't have any buttons or zips. Mm-hmm. It's just like a an Eileen Fisher sack. <laughs> that's a that's what we call <laughs> listeners. That's what we call a callback in the comedy industry. Margaret is referencing a gag from before we began recording. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a real rich callback for all the people who were um, just the only people who are going to get it are the NSA. Yeah. <laughs> they all oh, love Christ. it. <laughs> Hi, fellas. Hi, guys. Poor ladies. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, you know, assumptions. That's true. Um, Hi, folks. But. With an X. Uh, but one of the things that I found really fascinating is that, like, even with this audio production, you know, there isn't anywhere near the level of textual specificity, but I could still tell the setting, like, he hadn't changed it. They mentioned place locations um, when Moira is talking about her aborted escape attempt. Mm-hmm. You know, you can tell that they're situated in the Northeast and probably in Massachusetts because one of the places that she mentions is they get her to Salem and then they get her to Bangor. Right. So you still have a sense of the locations and uh, also just the way that Offred describes the neighborhood and also describes uh, the kind of people who used to live there being doctors and lawyers and professors. Some of just the details about the life that she was living with her husband before the theocracy rose. Uh, Some of those details. They're not anything specific, but... If you know they're talking about Cambridge, mm-hmm. it maps, right? So the the wall, when they talk about the wall in the text, um, mm-hmm. and they see what in the book are called unwomen, uh, or in the in the adaptation we see we see uh, abortion doctors kind of stuck on the wall, hanged on hooks. Um, mm-hmm. That's supposed to be Harvard Gate, right? Yep. She's really eerie. That's so terrifying. Can you describe that structure for me? So Harvard Gate is, uh, oh, another feature. And this is actually one of the only things in the adaptation that rubbed me slightly the wrong way. Is yeah, that go for it. They have a group of Japanese tourists who come through mm-hmm. to visit the location. And I felt like some of the accent work that they were doing with those characters was like not the not my most racially sensitive thing that I've ever encountered. Sure. Um, but... What they're describing is a thing that actually happens in Harvard Yard and at MIT where I work, which is just huge groups of Asian tourists just come in like with cameras out and they visit just these historic learning institutions. And it's fascinating that you have that sense of continuity going forward. But, you know, one of the things that they come and take pictures of is Harvard Yard is this really beautiful, you know, uh, Red brick everywhere, large trees. It's just like the platonic ideal of what a college would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and Harvard Gate is specifically, you know, it's right in the middle of a very cosmopolitan part of the city, uh, large ironwork structures, and it's nothing you would – I think so much of the imagery that we have for uh, fascism is either communist or Nazi. Right. And in both cases, those are places that really built their own structures, built their own defining structures and built their own defining iconography uh, around certain ideas. And it gives them this sense of um, wholeness and also this sense of like, oh, we could never possibly be Nazi Germany because like we don't have these like weird art deco. Right. Eagles. Everywhere. We don't have this aesthetic discontinuity. Right. They are 
wholly self-made aesthetically. And so instead, when you have to engage with it superimposed on structures that you're familiar with and structures that have an inherent meaning, it creates, I think, exactly what Margaret Atwood was hoping to create, which is an awareness of the seeds of fascism that are present in all you know, unequal power structures in our world. So damn spooky. Well, I was going to say, as an audio uh, narrative producer, what are some of the things about this production that you found especially noteworthy or effective that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, so I think one of the things that really strikes me about this production is the the way in which they captured all the vocal richness of the late Earl Hindman, um, who died in 2003. This production was from 2000. And there's, you know, sometimes people have like, as I do right now, uh, rumble that is not always accurately <laughs> mixed in uh, an audio piece. It's too much. It's too mm -hmm. dominant. Um, and it can end up sounding overprocessed when it's not. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that this really does an excellent job of presenting that booming voice, um, but not feeling like it's a put on. Like, it just feels mm -hmm. so, so physical and threatening. Um, and from context, I can gather that he probably plays the commander. Yes, Earl Hinman, sorry, Earl Hinman plays the commander. Fred. Um, and he also used to play Wilson on Home Improvement. Uh, That's who that uh, actor is. Yeah. Aha. Uh -huh. Now it's coming together. I did not recognize that voice, but that is very cool. It's very strange to see actors that you've known for so long as playing like nice men take this villain <laughs> turn. Yeah, it's very disconcerting. Um I also think that something that's really cool about audio fiction that makes it mm -hmm. different from television is its ability mm -hmm. to portray character interiority similar to how a novel might. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the various different vocal cues that you get, because the story takes place in a mm -hmm. lot of different things. You have Offred existing in the present. You have transitional phases where she's going from the present to her own mind to an active memory that then gets portrayed. And then you also just have snippets of narration that are kind of coming from outside of the time of the narrative. And it's unclear where that. Yeah, what do you think place. that is? <laughs> Um, what do I think that is? Because we, ha we have some indication um, from Professor Piexotto at the end of the story mm -hmm. that, they're, that they're tapes that were recovered in Bangor. Right. But what, yeah, what do you make of those? What do you make of the frame? What I make of the frame is that it seems very optimistic to me. Okay. I have a hard time imagining this story being told in this level of detail for uh, the opposition forces if she were captured and held against her will. Um, so that she is recording it and that it's close to the border of uh, the Republic of Gilead seems hopeful to me. Okay. Um, but that's, that's a very optimistic read of the situation. I wanted to get your thoughts on how we can fend off a reality like the Republic of Gilead? The thing that's had the most resonance to me is a, a, a piece of graffiti I saw a couple days after the election, which is um, 
he can never control how we treat each other. Mm. Uh, and so that's one thing. And then the other thing that I feel, and that's obviously that spoke to me because that's a, a huge established part of my identity already is I just always greet the world with as much kindness as I can muster. Sure. Um, and as much generosity as I can muster. And I've found that for me, that is a very, very effective strategy. Um, and that is, I think, where my efficacy is best applied. I just want to be very upfront with the fact that, like, I know that is not something everyone in the world can offer mm-hmm. to the world. I can offer that to the world because the world has been incredibly generous to me and especially the world in which I inhabit, everyone is inclined to read me with the benefit of a doubt. Right. Uh, And that is a privilege that I am so lucky to have that many people are not equally blessed with. And so, you know, your mileage may vary with greeting the world with generosity, but for me, it's very effective. And then the other thing that I really feel like I want to commit myself to doing is I feel like in our current landscape, all the pressure to explain oppression is being put on people who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately is a very unfair thing um, because it's exhausting to have to engage in discussions where your humanity is not taken for granted, where your equal humanity has to be explained and defended and demonstrated, where the validity of your personal experiences are on trial all the time. That is a form of labor we need to stop putting on oppressed people. But like, here I am. I'm not an oppressed person. I have a platform. I have people who listen to me and pay attention to me. And I just kind of wish there were a way I could wear a pin that said, ask me about my white privilege. That would encourage people who don't believe white privilege exists to ask me about it instead of bothering people who don't have it about whether or not it exists. Right. Um, So trying to bring myself into spaces because everyone needs a 101. Yeah. Right? And the problem is that right now we're asking people who should not be forced to provide it, to provide it over and over and over again and with questionable level of genuine good faith engagement from the audience they're performing it for. Right. And I just feel like my friends who don't have the level of privilege I have should get to set that burden down and I should be picking it up and I can hopefully pick it up in an effective way. So, you know, and obviously calling my representatives regularly. Sure. (laughs) Developing a real relationship with my representatives and developing a real relationship with um, local governance uh, and thinking about the ways that on on a small level we can affect change and protect people so yeah that's that's where i'm at nice with preventing the republic of gilead margaret thank you so much for coming on secrets crimes and audiotype today (laughs) thank you so much for having me david this was really fun where can the good people find you on that internet they can find me most frequently on twitter at mrs friday next 
If they like listening to me mispronounce things, they can hear me do so every Thursday on the Appointment Television podcast. If after Appointment Television airs, they're like, you know, I like that Margaret girl. I'd love to hear more of her thoughts, but maybe with fewer mispronunciations, they can subscribe to my newsletter, Two Bossy Dames, at tinyletter.com slash dames and get weekly uh, culture recommendations and thoughts from me and my partner, Sophie Brookover. Uh, every Friday and uh, if they're like I like this girl but not enough that I want to tune into anything she's on all of the time but like her general personal aesthetic appeals to me they can find me periodically on NPR's pop culture happy hour where I am one of a cast of exceptionally fun to listen to fourth chairs privileged enough to talk to very charming and intelligent main hosts Stephen Thompson Linda Holmes and Glenn Weldon true facts do you have a favorite I won't tell them not even the NSA can know. Aha! <laughs> Margaret, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking to you, David. Have a great night. Thank you. You too. Thank you again, Margaret. You heard the gal, folks. Two bossy dames. What a newsletter. This weekend's edition is entitled Old Baby Queers and Awkward Baby Dears. And if that sounds like something you'd enjoy, you'd be right. Thanks for listening to Radio Drama Revival, even though I said Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape in the interview a bunch of times. Now, if you like what you heard today, tell me. I am insatiable for your attention. I'm also pretty good about chatting with people on Twitter, especially if you want to, like, talk about a piece of audio fiction that we've both heard. Our handle is at Radio Drama. I know! How did Fred snag that? Our theme music is Danger Digi-Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. Our line producers are Matthew Boudreau and Eli McElvey. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, and our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.